This morning's scripture reading comes from John chapter 2, verses 12 through 22. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. This is God's word. For the past uh, few weeks, we've been looking at the gospel according to John. And uh, John poses the single most important question in our lives, and that is, who is Jesus Christ? The centerpiece of history, the centerpiece of our lives. And we've been looking at the first two chapters. Chapter two has two narratives. And uh, if you were here for the previous sermon, Jesus' first miracle was at a wedding at the beginning of the first half of chapter two. But this incident, this narrative, it takes place at a temple. So these two narratives, they appear very, very different on the surface. You have Jesus in the first part of chapter 2. He's invited to the wedding. In this passage, uh, he intrudes into the temple. The first passage at the wedding, weddings are warm, weddings are soft, weddings are joyful. At the temple, you get a sense of coldness and hardness. The miracle at the wedding was a private engagement. It was, uh, and Jesus was adding to the wedding. Here at the temple, we see a very public gathering, and Jesus is taking away from it. The last message that we heard, Jesus at the wedding, he's bringing comfort, he's bringing joy. This week, Jesus, and we just read this, Jesus is disturbing people, he's frustrating people, he's angering people, he's ruining the experience. And yet in both cases, we get to learn about who he is. We have to reconcile. Why is it that in the same passage, in the same chapter, you have two different versions of Jesus Christ? What are we seeing here? Because they're very connected. And they're actually, once you get underneath the surface, they're actually very similar. Because what the text is saying is here, on one hand, Jesus will fill your table. He's going to fill your table like a feast. In other cases, he's going to flip your table over. In one case, he's going to bring Uh, warmth and he's going to bring joy and he's going to bring comfort on the other hand he's going to interrupt you he's going to rebuke you he's going to disturb you he's not being duplicitous there's not two different versions of jesus it's actually two sides of the same person rather two different ways of saying the same thing about jesus christ and if you can see that and only if you can see that you're really going to start to understand the gospel you're really going to get to understand who he is what jesus christ is doing You have to understand him because, how do I say this? Unless you really start to get him, 
you're only going to see him as a good teacher. You're only going to see him as a religious figure. You're only going to see him as a, as a role model. And, and the thing is, you can't just leave it at that. You can't be neutral to Jesus Christ because what Jesus Christ does is so polarizing, so disturbing sometimes, you either are going to have to love him or you're going to have to hate him. You're going to have to embrace him fully or you're going to have to reject him fully. You're going to have to cling to him or you're going to have to crucify him. But you can't just say, wow, Jesus Christ, he's a good person. He, you can't be neutral about Jesus Christ. In verses 18 to 21, what he does is so disturbing, so confusing. No one actually does anything right away to him. They kind of stand back. Whether you're a Jew, or whether you're a teacher, whether you're a disciple, why is that? Because they're taking it in, and that's what we need to do. You need to take in the whole of who Jesus is. There are two points today, two points. Access and application. Very simple. Jesus gives us access. And how do we apply access to Jesus Christ? First, we're going to look at access. The importance of the temple. Here we have Jesus. It was just around the Passover feast. He enters into a temple and you have these money changers and, and animals. And you've got to see that the temple, the way it was structured, you have this outer court where a lot of Gentiles, lots of people, lots of commotion. It was built that way for people to be able to enter into the temple, particularly if you were not a Jew, if you were not part of God's people. You're able to come in and you can kind of get some semblance of God because they were not religious people per se. And there you had money changers and, and people who were selling animals basically to prepare for the sacrifices that you were to bring. Now remember, the temple was one structure. It was one central structure. And people came from all over the world. Jews came from all over the world to this place place it was like a pilgrimage and so here jesus sees this as he enters in and what he does is he makes his whip out of cords and it says that he's flipping tables over and he's he's basically beating everybody out and everybody rushes out and uh, you have to understand why you know later on the people come to him what authority do you have to do this people are outraged people are running out there's all this commotion jesus is disturbed in some ways this natural flow of movement that's taking place in the temple Why is there so much emphasis on the temple? You have to understand what the temple was, the importance of it. The temple was a place from the ancient times, and all the ancients understood this, the temple was a place where heaven and earth met. It was the intersection of heaven and earth. It was the intersection of what is eternal and what is temporal, what is finite and and what is infinite. The temple was a place where the supernatural and the natural connected. And as a result, because the divine was dwelling among us, there is this gap. And that gap, in some ways, was bridged at the temple. All the ancients understood this. All the ancient people, therefore, they had priests. Very, very elaborate affairs. You had the priests and you had mediators who had to mediate between people and God. You had sacrifices that were incredibly elaborate that were set up. And it takes place, if you look at any religion in those days, they had temples. If you went into any large city, the centerpiece of the city and the highest place, the highest point, cities were usually at high places, right? Jerusalem, city on a hill, they said, right? At these high places, you had a temple at the center because the highest access point to God, to the divine, to the supernatural, to the infinite was the temple. Now, today we look at the temple as a very obsolete thing. When you think about a temple today, you, you, th- you imagine an old building, uh, you imagine uh, coldness, 
only primitive people understood or come to temples. And the reason for this is that in the, ever since the 1800s, you had the Enlightenment era, and uh, you know, around the time of Napoleon, you had all the Enlightenment philosophers. And what they did was they tried to demystify everything that was supernatural. Anything that was spiritual, they demystified. And that era still pervades into our society today. That thought, those philosophies still pervade. And if anything, has, there's been a resurgence over the course of the early parts of the 1900s, those philosophies. And what they said in that era was that everything should be proven. Everything should be able to be explained as a product of some natural cause. In other words, there's no real mystery in life. There's no such thing as a spiritual. Everything is based, I I won't believe it unless I see it, right? Everything has to be empirically proven. Everything has to be scientific, so to speak. And that's because with the Enlightenment era came lots of scientific advances, lots of mathematical advances. And as a result, what they were starting to erase away were uh, deeper spiritual reality, deeper spiritual truths, and said that the only thing that can be proven, the only thing that can be truly trusted is something that can be proven by science, something that is naturally proven. And as a result, temples start to become obsolete. Temples, uh, they became very skeptical of the clergy. Now lately, things have been changing. If you look at any statistics, uh, even, around, uh, even in the, uh, the North American uh, uh, statistics as well as across the board around the world, there's been an uptick in spirituality. People are starting to come back to the church, and why is that? And the answer is pretty reasonable if you think about it. If at the bottom of everything there has to be an underlying natural cause, then that means there has to be a natural cause for all of our problems, whether they are personal whether they are relational, whether they are political, whether they are scientific, whether they are natural. But do all problems have a natural cause? Think about it. Because if that's true, can science explain everything? Racism? Genocide? Poverty? Can science explain poverty? War? Your neuroses? All of your neuroses? All of your psychoses? So there have to be things that go beyond the natural. There has to be things that go beyond science, even philosophy. Deeper issues need to be resolved. There has to be something real in our lives. And more people are beginning to accept the reality that there are problems, uh, you know, that there are problems that can only be answered by something deeper than science, something deeper than even philosophy. These issues are not going away. Think about it. If if this is the most technologically, culturally, scientifically, educationally advanced era in all of human history, how do you account for the fact that it's also the most violent and tragic and oppressive and abusive era in all of human history? Because one thing you can conclude is that it can't be based on technology and science. It can't be based on uh, education. And uh, we've really disconnected ourselves from this concept of a deeper reality. You know, back in the day, in, in the early, you know, in the 1800s, 1900s, you had these romantic poets, these romantic writers, philosophers, people like William Wordsworth and, and, and uh, Samuel Taylor Coleridge and John Keats. They believe that, that we've abandoned everything that was natural, anything that's deeply spiritual, and they were lamenting that because of the, the effects of the Enlightenment era. What is the temple? The temple is that bridge. The temple is the bridge. The temple is the gateway. The temple is that access point to that deeply spiritual experience. God, access to God. That's the importance of it. In verses 18 to 22, these people come to Jesus and they say, what authority do you have to do all that you did just now in clearing the temple? 
And Jesus responds and he says, tear down this temple and I will raise it up in three days. But the temple that he was speaking about was his body. What they're essentially asking was, how, how dare you act like you can just come in here and own it? How dare you act like you can just come into this place and just act like you own it and you're basically kicking people out of your house? How can you do that? How can you act like you own it? And what Jesus says is remarkable because what he says really is, own it, I am the temple. Tear down this temple, I will raise it up in three days. I am the temple. The temple that he was speaking of was his body. What Jesus is saying is that I am the climax of history from the beginning in the garden all the way into the ark, the ark of the covenant, all the way into the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God and man, all the way into the temple that was constructed, broken down, reconstructed to a lighter degree, where God meets with man through all of history the ultimate reality that you need, the ultimate reality that we desire, the ultimate, the deeply spiritual experience that's going to cure all of our problems. What's inside the biblical temple? Once it was built, God's glory would fill the temple. God's glory would reside in the temple. Jesus Christ is saying, I am that temple. The presence of God was the glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God. We call that in Hebrew, the kavod glory. That word represents substance. That word represents the weight of God, the heavy brilliance. In other words, if God appeared, and when he appeared, he would appear in a heavy brilliance, such as a pillar of cloud, a pillar of fire by day, a pillar of cloud by night. That was the glory presence of God. It came and it would fill the temple. The substance of God, the holy substance of God, the radiant weight of God. When you sit on a chair, you sit there and you don't even think twice because what, you say, what you're saying is that chair can hold the full weight of who I am. I'm not a very heavy person, but some of you may, may struggle. <laughs> I don't know with that, right? But the thing is, you, you may have to think twice. You look there and you say, can that chair hold me? Um, and, uh, and if that, what you're really saying is you have a certain amount of glory and you're looking for something that can support that glory. You're putting, you're able, something that can, that, you, that can represent and hold the full weight of who you are. That kavod glory, the Shekinah glory presence of God resides in the temple. It can sustain him. In 1 Samuel, you have the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant represented that holy presence of God. And uh, oftentimes you would see in war, they would bring out the Ark. Samuel would say, Samuel was the great judge and prophet. He would say, bring out the Ark. And when, as, a, as the Ark was brought out, as it represented the holy presence of God, they would win these battles. There's this one passage in, in, in 1 Samuel where the ark actually gets captured. So in essence, the glory presence of God was actually captured and departed from these people. And so everyone's mourning and wailing, so to speak, and the enemies have captured. The ark has been on the periphery then of Israel because it was taken away. And as that was happening, because the Israelites were in wickedness, and the priests were wicked, Two priests in particular, incredibly wicked, Hophni and Phinehas, and one of the wives of the priests uh, is, is in labor. As, so in essence, this battle is taking place. The ark has been taken away. Meanwhile, Phinehas' wife is in labor, and she's struggling in labor, and she gives birth to a son, and as the son is being born, she sees the glory presence of God departing. And so she names her child before she dies. She names her child Ikavod. Ichabod, which means no glory. She is in mourning and she dies. 
She is in mourning, and the country has lost the glory presence of God, and with that, the weight and the significance and the substance of who they are. Every one of us is looking for glory. Every one of us, from the moment that we were born, because there has been no glory, because we have lost access. We want that glory presence. In our spiritual DNA, we're built in to want and desire the glory presence of God. Now, we have no knowledge of God when we're born, and so we're looking for that glory presence. We're looking for it, and we're pursuing it in other things. We're pursuing it in money. We think the wealth is going to bring us glory. You look through all of history, and you see all the great figures that stand up, and you say, that is what I want. I want significance. I want substance. And so we idolize celebrities. In this day and age, pop culture and celebrity pop culture, especially with the rise of the internet in the 1990s, we see that just a, a fascination, a deep, deep obsession with people who are high up. And we love to see them brought down, right? And we like to see the people rise. And the thing is, we want that. We want the celebrity. We want the wealth. We want the riches. And we want, we find it in our relationships, and we are so obsessed with our relationships. We are so deeply obsessed in the sex culture. We are so deeply obsessed with just wanting to be known and wanting to be loved. And it, while it makes us emptier and emptier and emptier by the day, and by the way, being married doesn't help, because then you start pouring into your children, you start pouring it into a home, you start pouring into materials, you start pouring into school systems, and you start thinking about all sorts of stuff, stuff you never thought about when you were younger, and now you're starting to obsess over these things. You look at your career and your promotions and all the things that we're pursuing in our promotions, and we go neighbor against neighbor, friend against friend, and we're constantly trying to climb this ladder, and yet it doesn't solve the problem of glory in our lives because we want substance, we want worth, we want that radiant glory, and it's elusive. We can't find it, and it makes us emptier. You can have all those things. Some of us here have those things, and yet we're still continually empty. Why? Because God is in the periphery. In this passage in 1 Samuel, as I was referring to, God is in the periphery, and there's a glory cloud of God departs Phineas' wife says, no glory. In Mount Sinai, God is about to pass by Moses. God asks Moses, what do you want? Moses says, I want to see your glory. And God says, well, that's a problem because if you see the whole glory present, you're going to be consumed. It's going to eat you up. It's going to burn you alive. And so what does God do? He places him in a cleft on the rock. He's hid behind in the cleft of a rock. And he says, I want to see your glory. God says, if you see my glory, that glory presence will crush you. It will destroy you. It's too heavy. It's too brilliant. It's going to consume you. But I want to be near you. I want to give you access. And so he hides him in this cleft of a rock. Why? Because he wants Moses to be with him. He wants to be with Moses. Jesus says, my body is the temple. My personal, physical self houses that glory presence of God. Moses only got to see a part. He actually only got to see the backside. Because if he saw the full, the full glory, he would have been consumed. And yet, Jesus says, I am that glory presence. I want to be with you. I, the entire glory presence of God is contained within myself, and it's not mechanical. It's not this cold, dingy temple. It's organic it's a person. God chose of all things to incarnate himself, to be a person, to be personal for us, to be relational, to touch, to feel, 
to be vulnerable, to become weak, to cry, to thirst. Do you get that? In John chapter 1, he said the word became flesh and made his dwelling. It's that very same word. He templed with us. He tabernacled with us. In Hebrews, it said that Jesus Christ, the Son is the radiance of God's glory, the full radiance of the Shekinah glory of God, the exact representation of his being. Colossians says all the fullness of the deity was clothed and became, came in bodily form in Christ. Jesus is saying, I am the glory. I am the glory presence of God. Immeasurable power, ultimate glory, true reality. In every other temple, in every other temple, in order to get access to God, what do you have to do? You have to bridge the gap. You have to make the sacrifice. You have to pay the price, including this temple. Jesus enters into this temple, and what's happening? There are money changers. There are animals being sold. Why? Because they have to bridge the gap. They have to pay the price. They have to get the animals. They have to ensure that the sacrifice is made for them. They have to make the journey and the pilgrimage over to the temple to meet with God. If you were a Gentile, meaning if you were not a part of traditionally, culturally God's people, you couldn't even enter into the inner court. You just kind of hung out in that outer court where all the noise was. Just to get a semblance, a taste that God is real. By Jesus Christ saying, I am the temple, what he's saying is this. You no longer have to bridge the gap because I am the access point between heaven and earth. I am bridging the gap. And that means I am the sacrifice. I will pay the price. I am the great high priest. I am the altar. I am the sacrificial lamb. I will bridge the gap in full. I will play all those roles. It will all be consumed in me, contained in me. I am the God at the other side of the gap, and also I will provide the bridge for you to be able to reconcile with God. I'm going to make all, by my coming, all temples will become obsolete. That's an amazing admission. I am the mediator. I am the priest. Come to me, all who are, who are weary and weak, heavy laden, I will give you rest. Why? Because you have access with me. One of my favorite hymns is about access. Thy mercy seat is open still. It says there's access. No rabbi, no prophet, no religious leader, no teacher in history ever dared to make that claim and last. Think about it. They couldn't. Why? Because they were proven to be false. And it's ultimately because they could not bridge the gap. They knew that. They would never have claimed that. Gandhi never claimed that. Buddha never claimed that. Muhammad never claimed that. Jesus Christ, way in the beginning of this text, in an exegesis, an interpretation of who he is, begins by saying, I am the temple. You have access now to me. You have access to God. And yet, when Jesus Christ was on the cross, the veil that separated that part of the physical temple that shielded God's presence from his people, every year the high priest would enter in. Every year. John wasn't written chronologically, just so you know. John jumps all over the place because he's trying to tell you a story and he's trying to tell you in a very systematic way. And he comes right out. So this is actually, Jesus enters in, but really, if you, the way the temple's constructed, there's an outer court, an inner court, and then there's the most inner court. There's the holy place, the most holy place. 
There, once a year, a high priest would enter in, and the high priest would enter in and make sacrifices once a year, Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, and he would, blood just spilled everywhere, and there are trenches of blood that are, that's flowing. Here's Jesus Christ. The veil that's separating that most, there was a big, thick curtain. It's not like the curtains that you have at home. It's these big, thick curtains that were set up to separate God and his presence and man. And yet, while Jesus is on the cross, and the darkness is being poured out on him, and the wrath of God is being poured out on him, you know what happens? That veil, that curtain, actually tore from top to bottom. Very, that's amazing if you think about it. It didn't tear from bottom to top. Because if it tore from bottom to top, what that means is man is working to tear that curtain to get access to God, to get in. But instead, it tears from top to bottom because literally as if God himself was taking the curtain and tearing it and ripping it at the seams so that now we have full access to the glory presence of God and we will not be consumed. You know why? That's why temples are obsolete. Now we have full access Because on the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, I am the true high priest. The cross was raised. He says, unless the Son of Man is lifted up, he is raised now as the the primary access point between God and man, the true high priest. That access point. The only one who actually ever had the true right to enter into the temple and not be consumed. And yet, he says, I am being forsaken. What he's saying, the glory of God has departed from me. I am the true Ikavad. I am the true Ikavod. No glory. That's what he's saying. I am the only one who deserves glory. You know why? Because I am the exact representation of God's glory, and yet that glory has left me. I have no more access. I've been blocked out. Psalm, uh, Isaiah 53. He's been cut off from the land of the living. No access, no life. He says, I'm done for. I've been left for dead. You've departed from me. The glory presence of God had departed from Jesus so that we can have glory. Jesus Christ lost the access so that we can have access. No bridge, no salvation, no rescue existed for Jesus on the cross. Why? So that we can have the bridge. We can have the access. We can have the rescue. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And he calls you to come in. This is the access that we need. This is the glory that we need. This is the substance. For the, we're always looking for worth. This is the worth to know that on the cross, he hung there, not because he had to, not because he was forced to, but because he desired you. He desired access, not in a mechanical way, but in an organic, personal, relational way so he can touch, be weak, be vulnerable, and yet stand as king and authority and the presence and the power. All of that for you. You need to need it. The only prerequisite of having access to God is to say, I need it. I desire it. All my life, I've been searching for it. All my life, right now, it's not even, you don't have to even look that far back. Just look this morning. (laughs) Just look at your most recent argument. Just look at your most recent poignant, relevant sin that you've committed in your life. And we sin all the time. If you think about we're sin factories. But think about the most, the the biggest one that you remember of recent days. 
It's all because we're looking for glory. You don't have to look that far. It's represented everywhere in our lives. And Jesus is saying, this is what you need. You know why Jesus thirsted on the cross? Because we're thirsting. He said, I came to quench your thirst. You need to see the gap. You need to admit through and through that we've been trying to bridge this gap as lost people. We're just, we're just looking to find worth. We're just looking to find significance and substance on our own. And we've been trying to bridge it on our own. Right now, if you feel that gap, think about it. Right now, if you're feeling that gap between yourself and God, then that, you're actually pretty close to God. You have an opportunity because you, that's, that's half the battle. You know you need it. Jesus says, I am the temple. Come to me. You have access. Thy mercy seat is open still. Second point, last point. What if you took it in? What happens? How do you apply this? A couple things. There are a lot of things. I'm just going to end with a couple things that we see in the text, okay? First, it's going to change your relationship with God forever. First part of the text, verses 12 to 17, verses 13 to 17. Jesus enters in. There are money changers, animal sellers. Skeptics will tell you that what Jesus was doing is he was protesting the commercialization of religion. You hear that all the time, right? Oh, we shouldn't sell things in the church because look at Jesus. He came in, he saw this, and he was, you know, they were selling things and he didn't like it, right? But think about that. Jews came from all over the world and you couldn't come into the temple without a sacrifice. And so here, if you're coming from far away, and you're traveling on this long distance, and it's incredibly hot in that Middle Eastern area, that region, to bring an animal with you, you're bringing that animal with you at great risk. If you're bringing sheep with you, number one, it's an incredibly long journey, incredibly hot journey. Sheep don't look fast to me, right? And the thing is, if you're going to bring sheep with you, you're going to cart these things with you, there's a good chance they're going to die. If they die, if they even get sick, you cannot make that sacrifice, in fact, you get defiled, you get tainted, and then you, you basically have to go back. You can't enter into the temple. And so these money changers were there because currencies from all over the world, you had to exchange, they had to be foreign exchange, right? And you had animal sellers really as a service. They were set up as a service so that you don't have to go that long way with an animal and risk all that and be defiled. They wanted you to be, it was a great service so that you can go in and enter in so that you can pay, so that you can make the sacrifice. But it wasn't personal. And it wasn't transactional. It was transactional, I mean, right? It was mechanical. You just walked in, paid your fare, exchanged your money, paid your fare, picked up your animals, sacrificed it, and you left. It was mechanical. It wasn't personal. And so here's Jesus as he enters in. Gentiles who can't even enter into the inner court are just kind of standing there trying to understand what it means to pray, for so to speak. And you have these money changes and noise and everything's going on. And people are just kind of paying their way in, making their mechanical transactions and walking away. And Jesus says, this is not who I am. I am not your boss. This is not a client-vendor relationship. You know what a client-vendor relationship is? A client, if you work in any type of professional services, a client-vendor relationship is you sign a, a statement of work. Once you sign that statement of work, what, uh, that basically sets up the agreement for what kind of services are being rendered and what kind of services are being received. And if the services are up to par, 
according to the statement of work, you receive a certain amount of, of tra- a certain transactional uh, investment in return. That's what happens. We do that all the time. You go, you know, simple things, you walk into a store, if you like what you see, the product, it's good to your, pleasing to your eye, you purchase it, right? You give them a transaction, you get to walk away with the other part of the transaction, right? And the statement of work is your receipt, right? In the same way, a client-vendor relationship works that way, right? Jesus, our relationship with God is not a client-vendor relationship. You don't walk in, make your transaction, do your part. The thing is, the problem is a lot of us think that way. A lot of us think, if I just do my part, if I just pray, If I just pray with all my might, because I was taught growing up, it depends how, it matters how hard you pray. And so we pray all night sometimes. There, there's one time a year, my church growing up, you had to come in at least once a year where it was like an all-night prayer. I dreaded it as a child. But you couldn't say that because then you got in trouble. So you came in, and the one, the one saving grace you had was you had a meal at the end. And you got to play with some friends. Right? But the thing is, it gets tired, and it gets late, and people are praying. And it's kind of scary sometimes. People are praying all night. Right? And they're beating themselves and they're beating each other and they're beating the floor and they're screaming and they're yelling. Some of these places, right? Depends on how charismatic your community was growing up, right? Now, the thing is, um, a lot of that is transactional. Why? Because when you're doing that, what you're saying is, so I was told you need to have more faith if things don't work out for you. I was told you need to have more faith. You need to, have, uh, you need to pray harder. You need to serve more. You need to read your Bible more. And the thing is, Jesus is coming into the temple and he sees these transactions being made. He says, that's not who I am. This was provisional because the ultimate glory will come. He wasn't mocking it. He was fulfilling it. He wasn't demeaning it. He's saying, it's now obsolete because I've come. Jesus is saying, I've made a, a new way, a fuller way. It's based on grace. You can relate with God intimately. You can relate with God organically. You can relate with God personally. This will no longer, the Greek word, he says, this is not a market. This is not an emporium was the actual Greek word. This is not a mall. That's what he's saying. It is based on grace. You no longer have to work to earn acceptance. God is no longer your boss. God, this is no longer a client-vendor relationship, which is what you've made it into. You've made this into a client-vendor relationship. It is a house of prayer. You can connect with God. Prayer can be a delight again. You can know him because you are so intimately known and loved by God. There are people here, and I'm going to just say this as a blanket statement for all of us. There are people here, you really have to get rid of your old view of church. There are people here who have walked in skeptical of church. Number one, you're welcome here. But you have to get rid, you have to put your skeptical view of church away. Your skeptical view of Bible, you have to put it aside. Your skeptical view of church authority aside. Because if you don't, what you're, you're going to do is, you, if this is all you've got, right? Because if you don't, Jesus says, this is all you have, this is the, all you need. It is more abundant than you could ever imagine. But the thing is, if you don't do that, you're still going to look for access for the rest of your life. You're still going to look for intimacy somewhere else. You're still going to look for relationship in an obsessive way somewhere else. You're gonna, it's going to make you tired. It's going to make you anxious. It's going to make you bitter. You know why? Because those things that you're putting into, do, it's like the chair. It cannot hold the weight of glory that you desire to hold. It will fall apart. You are driving a 10-ton truck over a bridge that can only hold two tons. It is bound to fall apart. And when it falls, 
it is painful and devastating. And we are, we've all experienced that to some degree in our lives. You're still going to look for access somewhere. Here, worship, and peop, when you do that, worship becomes very, very mechanical. When, you know, you know you're worshiping something else because when you come here, it's mechanical. It's not real. It's not personal. It's not relational. There's no power. There's no miracle in your life. You have to remember that Jesus Christ on the cross, you have to remember his words. I have been forsaken. It covered. No glory. I've paid the price. He didn't sit there, and you, don't, you never see in the Bible. The Bible is very, very economical about the words that Jesus uses on the cross. You never see him moaning and saying, oh, I'm so in pain, I'm hungry, I'm starving. You don't hear him saying that. But he does say, I thirst. Why? You don't see him saying, you know, oh, these miserable fools, if they only understood what, who I am. You don't, you don't ever see him doing that, groveling. You don't see him saying that. He says, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. He turns to criminal and says, today you will be with me in paradise. Very, very emphatic. Very, very bold. Very, very courageous. And very economical. Very economical. All the way through. Poignant words. Remember those words. Because what he's saying, the three words, well, one word in, in Greek, tetelestai, it is finished. He says, it is finished. I've paid. That's actually a very transactional word. He says, the transaction has been made. The debt has been paid. I made the sacrifice. You are a ransom. You know what ransom is? You think about what the word ransom means? Someone has taken you hostage. Someone has taken you hostage and has captivated, captured you, captured your heart, captured your soul. And Jesus is saying, I'm taking your place. I'm going to pay the price in full once and for all so that you are free. Personally, relationally, you can be with God and you have freedom of access. You can pour into God everything, even the idolatry. You say, this is who I am because you will not be rejected. You will be embraced. You will be loved. You say, this is who I am and this is who you are. And this is what you've done. Let that consume your life. That's not going to hammer you into worship. That's not going to hammer you into worship. That's going to melt your heart into worship. Number two, you can focus. If it changes your relationship with God, number one, two, you can focus. You can get rid of the distractions. The money changers, the animals in the temple courts, they were very loud. They were very smelly. There's arguing and haggling, and it was incredibly distracting. And the irony here is that this is where the people who didn't know God would come to worship. This is, they would enter into the worship, worship area, these outer courts, to get an understanding of what God is, and yet they couldn't worship. Why? Because it's arguing and haggling and, and you know, animals that are making noises and the smell and the you know, sound of money all over the place, coins everywhere. This is where the Gentiles will come to get a sense of, of, of who God is. For some of us, we're coming here just to get a sense of God is, who God is. You're coming here just to kind of reconnect with who God is, but you're distracted because you feel like you're on the outside. You feel like you're in the outer courts. And so, uh, you know, you're distracted by the, the chatter. People come in, they feel so comfortable with each other, and you feel like you're a bit on the outside. And, and you can't really worship. Some of you, you felt like that all your life. 
you feel like you've always been on the outside. And so when you come in, even though on the outside you feel connected, on the inside you feel rejected. You feel left out. And as a result, you can't really worship. You can't really become vulnerable. You can't really pray. You can't really look into and bear what Scripture really has to say about you. And you look around and you say, what is it that those people have that makes them do it right? And so you kind of just go through the motions, right? That's what we end up doing. Worship becomes mechanical and you feel like you're being left behind. Think about this. Everybody right now is sitting in one of two temples. One of two temples. Either A, the first temple, you're being driven by fear, or B, you're being driven by grace. You're either in an old temple or you're in a new temple. If you're in an old temple, then there's going to be no presence of God, there's no power, and there's lots of pride. And as you know what that pride does? If you're coming before God, you know, but you're, you're, you know, you're coming before God, but you're trusting in success, then all you're going to be doing is you're going to be looking at people around you and looking at the people who are more successful than you, you're going to be angry at. And the people who are less successful than you, you're going to step on, push aside, make fun of and mock in your, in your you know, subtle ways. That's what we're going to do. Lots of insecurity. Because you never really know if that's the measure that makes you who you are. You'll never ever know where you truly stand. You're always going to feel below average. You're always going to feel that way. Think about it. If you, put it, Van, if you put it into your looks, your figure, your outer appearance, you're always going to find people that you believe are beautiful, and you're always going to find people that you believe are less beautiful than you. You're always going to feel average at best. It's always going to be the case. There's no substance. There's no worth. So what that does is then you start pouring into people, right? Things that you need to build up to, make, to get you ahead. And that's what starts that cycle, the corrosion, the corruption. That's what happens. If you're driven by grace, there's a deep humility that sets in. Why? Because you know you are the least deserving person in the room. In fact, that's, I used to think that that was what early Christians do, a young Christian does. Actually, the reality is that maturity, maturity enables more of that in our lives. Maturity results in humility. Immaturity looks like this. It's never my fault, where it's never, never my fault, right? It's, just, it's always some of my fault, but it's much more your fault. That's immaturity. It's never, I'm less to blame, but you're much more to blame. That's immaturity. Uh, immature people tend to destroy other people's reputations because uh, there's this deep spiritual paranoia. It's built into our DNA. Every one of us has it, and you're trying to heal that. The only way you can heal that is to trash other people, put other people down. It's distracting, and you're never going to heal. In maturity, there's a deep sense of certainty. There's a deep sense of God's presence, a deep sense of God's holy glory in your life. It's your life hidden in Christ, and as a result, it's Christ's righteousness that you're hiding behind. That makes you, that makes you incredibly humble, Because you didn't earn it, but you can't lose it either. You see, there's nothing you can do and nothing about you that's going to make you, because it's all about what Christ did. It's all about who Christ is. And so you've got to look to the beauty of Christ. The more beautiful Christ is to you, it's probably because you see who you really are. That's going to make you incredibly humble, but it's going to make you tremendously confident. There's a certainty, and that's going to allow you to focus. If you're coming in right now and saying, wow, 
I don't deserve to be here. I don't feel like I'm a fit here. That's an amazing place to be. Hide yourself in Christ. Grow in him. Take some time. Don't, you gotta give it a chance. Take some time. You can focus. There's a certainty that allows you to focus. Don't be covered by the immediate distractions. Look at Jesus Christ on the cross. Immobile. Captured. There is noise everywhere. He's the sacrifice. There is noise. There's mocking. Even the criminals are mocking him. Right? And, and he's on the cross. And he's in pain and he's suffering. Don't let suffering be your distraction. Don't let the noise be your distraction. Don't let your peers be your distraction. Don't let the desire to win people's approval. Here's Jesus. Everyone's mocking him. And God himself has turned away. And yet, he says, my God, my God. He still calls him his God. He's still so focused. He still calls him his God. Do you see that? Why? In Hebrews 12, it says, for the joy, he still had joy. That's amazing. He didn't go up there and like, <laughs> you know, like, oh, look at me. I'm, I'm like, that's not what he did. He, he went up there and he had joy. There was a deep joy that would never die. You know what that joy was? Hebrews 12, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning a chain. The shame, the cross, that was the immediate distraction. What was the joy? Isaiah 53, he says, when he sees his people justified, that would satisfy his soul. You were the joy. The reason, why he wasn't, uh, the reason why he wasn't distracted was because he was thinking about his God and he was thinking about you. And he created a tremendous focus. That's the love of Christ. That's the beauty of Christ. Look at Christ disfigured. He was marred for you. And he was joy. It was his joy to do that. We're going to come to him at the foot of the cross and we always say, I'm so deeply repentant of who I am. And, and it's not like Jesus, we think of Jesus as this. The statue of Jesus will be like this in heaven, you know? But in reality, it's the, it's the one that kneels and embraces. He says, I was glad to do it for you. I've offered it for you. Focus. Even in suffering, even when you feel left out, he is present in your life. If you're here, he is present in your life. Lastly, Jesus becomes your authority. Last several verses here, the Jews question his authority. Coming right back to this now, in the beginning of the text, now at the end of this sermon, Jesus questions his authority. You know, they could have arrested him for what he did, and they could have charged him for what he did, but they didn't. Why didn't they? I mean, here's a guy disturbing the public, a public place, a religiously public place. They could have arrested him. Why didn't they? What were they afraid of? I mean, clearly it wasn't his physical prowess. Right? We don't know how big he was. We don't know how strong he was. But you don't think a bunch of people couldn't just ganged up on him and arrested him? They could have done that. There were many of them. It couldn't have been his whip. I mean, he took a few cords, made a whip. You know, he chased the animals that were out, right? But, you know, what were they afraid of? It was him. It was his presence. People just kind of knew that he had the right to do what he did. Everyone just cleared out. I mean, one man, everyone cleared out. All the animals cleared out. They felt his authority. I, I'm, I find that remarkable. You know, if somebody came in right now and started making a commotion, my guess is a few people would stand up and be like, hey, hey, let's, let's go outside and you can, you can talk a little bit later. It'd be pretty obvious. It would disturb us for a moment, but we would continue on. One man walked in, this great temple that stood for centuries, chases everybody out. Nobody bothered him. Nobody stopped him. 
later on, they wanted an explanation. They came to him later. What authority do you have? Imagine somebody comes into your house. You're sitting down watching Eagles Redskins, and uh, you're on the couch. You got some friends over, and somebody comes in and just says, everybody out. I'm going to start moving furniture around. The TV's coming down, and, and you're sitting there on your couch, and they're kind of moving the couch around you. What would you say? What right do you have to come into my house and move my stuff around, right? The only person who could ever do that is who? The one who owns the house. The person who owns the house, the person who has authorship, the person who has creatorship. Jesus says, I have authority. I am the temple. Tear it down. I will rebuild it, he says. I have authorship. I have creatorship. The important thing, what is the temple? The temple is a central place for God's people. It's the center of religious life. This theology pretty much, the concept of the temple pretty much extends all the way through the book of John. The temple is the motivational representative center. We all have that. It is our hearts. Our hearts are the motivational representative center of our lives, our souls. In other words, what your heart wants, you will pursue. What the core of you believes and values, at all costs, you will pursue it. Nothing can stand in your way. The motivational center of our souls is our hearts. So here's Jesus coming into your life. And he takes residence. And he says, I own you. I bought you at a price. I'm going to come into your heart. And I'm going to move some furniture around. Initially, you're going to say what? What right do you have? Submit to his authorship. Submit to his authority. You didn't like the Ten Commandments? Submit to it. Give it a shot. I don't want to say it's so petty. You know, give it a chance. Submit to his authority. Come to Christ as authority. You know, a lot of times we come in and we say, you know, I want to be saved because it's my ticket to heaven, you know. Um, you then, if you come in like that, you're never going to accept Jesus coming in and rearranging your life. You're never accept, you're going to accept the suffering in your life. You're never, never going to accept the, the issues that you experience in your life. The appropriate response to really taking Jesus in is submitting to his authority. It's very important. Think about it. Parents, you would understand this, okay? Um, parents, um, you know, your child kind of grow up. We have a number of parents here. Your child grows up to maybe like, eight, you know, right to the age where they get really sassy is probably like around, I would say, you know, 11. Some of you have like eight good years, nine years left, okay? They start getting really sassy around 11, right? At the age of 11, um, you say, I want you to go clean your room. Before, before you do anything, before you watch TV, clean your room. Why? You know, why can't I watch it and then I'll clean my room? And, you know, <laughs> you, as a parent, you have several options. Um, you can be the friend, right, that says, well, you know, you know, here, let me explain everything to you and whatever. A lot of times, as, they, if you, as ch- children get older, they, they consistently ask for an explanation first before they do anything. Why? Because what you're saying is, in my intellect, I'm, I'm putting myself at equal with you. Because the intellect is all I need. Reason is all I need. And I need to hear a good reason for why I need to do something before I do it. The appropriate answer for a parent is probably, you probably say this, parents, you know, um, you know, I want you to go clean your room before you do this next thing. They say, why? The answer is really because I said so. You know why? Because who is the authority in the house? You are the authority. You are the authority. You don't need to give an explanation for anything, right? You can explain later, Right? But the thing is, it's about submission to authority. Jesus is not saying, here, let's negotiate. There are times when he does. 
But he's not saying, here, let's negotiate my authority in your life. He's gonna come and he says, I've bought you with a price. You belong to me. I want to be, I've not, I didn't mortgage you. You know, peace, I didn't rent you. I didn't mortgage you. I own you. I've taken ownership of your life. I've paid a ransom. You belong to me. I'm intimate with you. I will, I will intimately come in and rearrange your life to make you more like me. That sounds like a wonderful thing because that's going to take away the corrosion. It's going to take away the painfulness. There'll be other pains, but it's going to, the glory is setting in. Do you see that? It's going to consume things. Do you see that? Submit to Christ. That means that sometimes we obey and then desire and learn the explanation later. We don't question, why am I suffering now? Submit and obey. And the explanation will come. You will come to understand. There are some things you'll come to understand. Adam and Eve, God said, I want you to eat from any tree, but don't eat from this tree. Satan came by later on in a serpent, and he said, why? You see? And Eve said, yeah, why? Adam said, yeah. The instant the question why, it was a rebellious question. And it brought rebellion into their lives. And the rebellion, as it consumed them, turned them against the Father. And, the, and what happened? The devastation, the corrosion of sin in their lives. Right? God didn't tell them why. He just said, don't do this. They didn't know why, and they rebelled. If you submit for any other reason than the authority of Christ, you know, you can't submit because, oh, if, if I don't submit, I'm not going to get what I want. That is, that is a negotiation. That is a client-vendor relationship. Submit to the authority. Submit for no other reason than the fact that Jesus Christ has authority in my life. <clears throat> As we close... I'd like to come to you and just submit to you. I know a lot of us have grown up in the church, maybe walked away from a while, for a while, have come back, and you're starting to re- rediscover and explore who Jesus is and what he's done. You have to put aside and run, understand that coming to Christ as the temple means that it's going to change your relationship with God forever. Grace-based. Which temple are you living in? Which temple are you worshiping in? That access, right, is going to give you focus. Focus in the midst of suffering. Focus in the midst of good times. Focus across the board. But you have to submit to the authority of Christ. Listen to what he has to say, even if you don't understand it. Don't let your brain get in the way. Don't let your ability to understand something get in the way of ultimate glory and access that we need, that we've been looking for all our lives in Christ. Okay? Will you do that this week? Remind yourself this week? Let's pray together, shall we?